You're listening to Rosie on the House. Your Saturday morning tradition for 30 years. Why don't you? I, uh, yeah, almost said 13. As we walk around the back, we are in the 8 o'clock hour, the outdoor living hour. And recently, we kind of had made a, a restructure to the event where the first Saturday of the month, we bring in the Department, uh, excuse me, Arizona Farm Bureaus. Mm-hmm. Second Saturday, we bring in John Eisenhower of Integrity Tree Service talking arboricultural. Third Saturday, we talk with Jay Harper of the Farm's Choice, all things gardening, nursery, and landscape. Fourth Saturday, we have the Farmer Greg with the Urban Farm. But there's four times a year we have this mysterious fifth, uh, fifth Saturday. And I've been using that for various different things. For example, today, uh, we were going to bring in the uh, representative from the Arizona Department of Agriculture to follow up mm. with Rosie's Hour with Rita McGuire talking water. I thought... You know, agriculture is the biggest consumption of water in the state, and that would be a great follow-up. But when we scheduled that, no one realized it was Easter weekend. Our guests had plans with family, and it just didn't work out. So I, Jen walked in and said, so I'm finishing the newsletter about Thursday. What are you going to talk about? And we, and we <laughs> close on Friday to observe Good Friday right. in the office. So she's like, you know, Jen, uh, I, I don't know. I got a cancellation, and I've got to figure that out. So she said, well, can I make any calls? I handed her my cell and said, look. Here in our CRM, here's our go-to people. Just start texting everyone and see who can, who can be there. And I, I have before me a panel of experts, unstoppable experts. Uh, we've got John Eisenhower with Integrity Tree Service. Good morning. Good morning. Yay. Farmer Greg with the Urban Farm. Yes. And you have brought in special guests and returning guest, Kari Peterson, who now I – Kari Spencer. Sorry. This Sorry. is Farmer Greg Peterson. Yes. Sorry, <laughs> Spencer. You were up early, I know. We both have very common last names. Oh, so. that's true. That's true. And you can add now add author to your name. Yes. Yes. I'm holding a, what is this, about a 250-page? Uh, about 360-some page book, yes. All about? All about urban farming, growing food and raising livestock in the city. And it's something you've put together here specifically for... Our, our Arizona and climate. Well, there is information here specifically for our climate, but this book is really for anybody. It teaches you how to find out what are the best growing methods in your area. And I touch on some specifics for uh, different uh, climates, uh, but there is a lot of information here for Arizona. And if you'd like to jump on the line, I, did I give the number? I said we've got Not unstoppable guests, but I and to call in, but I don't think I gave the number. One triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you. You can text to four one one nine two three or send an email if you need help with plant or insect identification. Snap a picture and send it to info at rosieonthehouse.com. We have a couple follow ups we were talking about earlier. Our last talking tree segment, Aleppo Pine Blight had come up and you've have some additional research since that last broadcast and an update for any any homeowner or pro- just as important any neighbor to someone with an Aleppo pine those things yeah, and they tumble down or they affect more than one property in a lot of <laughs> no cases kidding. yeah we have a, a lot of disease and pathogens that that and insect problems across the valley affecting lots of sh- uh, shrubs flowers ground cover but this is a big issue because it's dealing with probably one of the largest trees we have here in the valley and lots of them and it primarily targets the aleppo pines um 
and the mature ones. It's the big ones that are wow. having, having the biggest problems. They're the ones that have the, the greatest nutritional and water needs, of course. And if being planted in the urban environment where they have limited rooting space, they have, uh, they're already kind of on that edge of, of, uh, of their, 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 their limits in, in, in regard to tolerating stress. Mm. So if those are affected by these stress factors, such as the culture conditions and the soil compaction, uh, drought problems, uh, lack of winter rain, um, it's a sad thing to look across town, see these beautiful, uh, mature Aleppo pines uh, really fighting for their life right now. So, Well, they're the biggest of the big ones, aren't they? I mean, they it are. take four people to put, put your, your arms, arms all the way around sure. one of the big ones, right? I know. That's why it's such a, um, a, a serious issue because you, know, you drive across town and you can hardly see a, an Aleppo pine that's not affected. And when you see large stands of these, and they can be you know, 70, 80, 100 feet tall, uh, it's uh, it's a sad thing to see them declining and possibly dying. Uh, so we can talk about that if you'd like to talk about some of those symptoms. Where some of the research is showing that it, uh, you know, the universities and and plant pathologists, uh, uh, the Arizona State Land Department have been doing some extensive research since our the first out, large outbreak that we experienced about ten years ago. This is a, uh, ten years later. Very same symptoms presenting, but this time it's more widespread. It's affecting pines in, in, in Las Vegas and Tucson across the southwest, uh, je- identical to our symptoms here. But nobody can put their finger on a single pathogen that's involved. Although we're finding pathogens such as diplodia, which isn't common to the southwest normally, uh, which is a tip blight issue that we're finding that there. We're finding some mites. We're finding other uh, uh, disease and insect uh, pathogens, but we're but we're thinking they're secondary, that it's the stress issues that's causing this widespread susceptibility to these secondary pests, which now come in and start to uh, do their damage. Well, and that, that really speaks to a lot of what Kari and I speak to, and that's that if you keep the plant healthy, so it's really our job to make sure that we put water, fertilizer, a healthy environment around this tree, right? Right. We say, as go the roots, so go the shoots. Yeah. You know, if you have a nice rooting environment and that's conducive to good root development, mm-hmm. then, of course, the above ground parts of the tree are going to be doing better. Uh, but, you know, you have these trees that have been in a location for 20, 30, 40. And in, in the case of the pines in my yard, which are affected, have been in there f- since 1970, you know, wow. 50 years, uh, going on 50 years. And so we have these trees that have exhausted all of the available rooting space. They have limited nutrients, and now they're 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 uh, unless you have some very good condition growing conditions such as a flood irrigation, they're really stressed. Mm. So if you don't have flood irrigation, what can a homeowner do to keep those trees from becoming stressed? Well, it's you're sort of chasing a little chasing the symptoms at this point. If you have presenting symptoms, you know whether some of these treatments I'll recommend are going to help or not is debatable. But you can start deep deep watering. Um, of course, we, we, we have soaker hoses around our trees, and every three or four weeks, we're letting them run about 24 hours, just slowly getting mm-hmm. a nice deep saturation around the trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, our trees are around a lawn, lawn irrigation, but it's, it's just fertilized every couple of days with a light, you know, a shallow irrigation that's suitable for the lawn. But they're not getting that deep saturation yeah. that, they, mm-hmm. that they enjoy. In fact, all, the Aleppo pine is from the, the, the Mideast. In fact, there's a community in Syria called Aleppo from which the, the trees are named. They get winter rains 
every year. The Mediterranean area gets a cycle of winter rains, which really keeps those trees in their native setting uh, well supplied with all the water they need for the year. We don't enjoy that here. And when we have particularly dry winters, mm, like mm-hmm. we did last year in 2016 going into 2017, it could be that the symptoms we're seeing in late 2017 and now are due to a year ago low um, uh, low rainfall in 2016 winter. And then, of course, we had that wicked hot summer in June, which didn't help things. You know, that uh, puts additional stress on a lot of trees. Uh, of course, when trees are photosynthesizing, one of the byproducts of that is water vapor. So loss mm-hmm. of water. When trees are, are, are just... Uh, enduring a very very hot summer they're giving up a lot of those energy reserves and water resources that they that they store for 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 difficult times like this but once those resources are depleted then they're on the edge and all it takes is a few more additional stresses and we might and we see symptoms like we're seeing now one one of my big solutions for keeping trees healthy is putting a basin around them with you know at least six eight inches of woody mulch like happens in the forest. Uh, so if we're out there constantly raking up all of the stuff around the base of the trees, it's probably not such a good thing, eh? No. Yeah, we, we certainly recommend leaving that, that leaf litter if you can. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people just can't do that, and it's, it's difficult. But, yeah, we leave all of our pine needles uh, underneath all the trees, and it, it starts creating a duff of, you know, eight or six or eight inches of pine pine needles, which is great. It, you know— reduces the loss, water loss through evaporation from the soil surface, and basically conditions the soil. Encourages yeah. mit- you know, nitrogen cycling, as well as just improving that uh, microbiology in the soil by keeping that duff layer above, uh, above the ground. So, yeah. And this you can do for any tree. We're talking sure. all trees that you have in the ground. You want to put a, you know, a nice thick layer of woody mulch. Um, in my fruit tree program, I call it my 6-6 six, six rule, 6 inch of woody mulch, 6-foot diameter basin. Beautiful. Minimum. Yeah, good policy. What's the name of that video you told me to watch like two years ago and I still haven't? Return uh, to Eden or something <laughs> hold like on. that? Oh, hold back, on. You're, you're tr- trying to figure out a video from two yeah. years ago? <laughs> I, back, I still have it bookmarked. Back to Eden film. Yes. It's a great film. So, it's Car, a, you've obviously seen it. To, I've well, seen it a few times, yes. What am I missing by not <laughs> watching this? It, it's not hard to find. It's about an hour long. It's on YouTube. It's free to watch. Yes, it's fascinating film about how organic matter uh, can really, you know, just supercharge the soil and make growing food so much easier and more productive. And I really love it because it's basically an easy, easy way to grow things and not have to fertilize them a whole lot. And it also holds moisture in the soil. So I recommend that film for anybody to take Back a look at. Back to Eden. Back to Eden. It's, it's so good. He talks about, you know, fish have scales, birds have feathers, and we have skin to protect ourselves. He talks about mulch being the skin of the earth. He says that leaf litter is literally mm. protecting our planet. We ended up raking it up, sweeping it up, throwing it and away. Throwing it away. And, mm-hmm. we, and, we, and then we fertilize. And we, yeah, and we, <laughs> and we rake our— It's we, like, what are we thinking? Especially in the desert. So yeah. if, you, if you can't leave the leaf litter in place because it's going to blow all around and create a mess in your yard, at least you could do, as, as Greg is suggesting, compost those leaves and then return that mulch back to the soil in a, in a one- or two-, three-inch layer of soil over the— um, over the the, uh, the ground around your plants. Absolutely. I forget the percentages, but when you add organic matter to the soil, it, it holds water incredibly. 
So back to Eden. I, I am going to watch it on one day. I am going to watch it, but uh, yeah, it's it's a little difficult to to find an hour to carve out at the Whitman Plantation to to watch it. But if you joined us last week, you learned about Farmer Greg's uh, method of controlling weeds, where he takes a knife and he cuts the weed and composts it. You've heard Rosie's method of his propane bottle and his flamethrower. Well. Bonide's got a solution for you as well called Burnout Weed and Grass Killer. If you're looking for something that's people and pet friendly and you don't have a time to sit there and burn it with a flame or cut it down with a knife, you can just spray it. You'll see results within 24 hours. And it's so safe you can put it right into flower gardens, vegetable gardens on the base. It will solve any type of weed or grass problem you're fighting. Bonide products are family-made in America, and you can find them all over the state, including Mesquite Valley Growers in Tucson and Phoenix. You can find it at Treeland Nurseries and in Prescott Waters Garden Center out on Iron Spring Road. If you're trying to battle a weed problem organically, it's Bonide's Burnout Weed and Grass Killer. On a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning. We have Gary on the line. As we get to Gary, though, Chris called and couldn't hang on and wanted to know about pine trees. We were talking earlier about this pine blight. Well, he doesn't have that. He just wants to know, can he transplant a pine tree? And that's oh, I know oh, Arizona Big Tree Movers has oh, up to 72. 90-inch. A 90-inch spade. Uh, was that big enough for a pine tree? <laughs> well, it depends. You know, We planted one that was about uh, 8. 10 inches in diameter with the 90-inch spade truck successfully. It's still in our front yard today, and we, we love it. It's great. But there's limits on what you can, with the size of a tree, you can transplant. Pines are a difficult transplant. You, yeah. Greg was, you know, I could hear his, his uh, groaning over there when you started talking <laughs> about that. <laughs> they're, they're a tough transplant. Yeah. They are. Because they, they go so deep with the roots. Well, you can start, give Arizona Big Tree Movers a call, and if anyone can do it, it's going to be them. He also yeah. wanted to know, uh, does hydrangea, 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 is that hydrangea. something that he could grow in the desert? It's difficult to grow in the desert. It really likes acid soil, and we have alkaline soil. It also does not particularly like the heat, so a lot of people really like those colorful hydrangea, and in my experience, if I plant them in my yard, the heat just sucks the color out of them, so they start out blue or pink, and they end up just kind of white. Uh, so they, they are a difficult plant. I would put one in a pot if you wanted to try it so that you can control the soil acidity, acidity a little bit better and put it in a little shady, cool area. And Kari, uh, you're now author of City Farming. Do you still have the micro farm project? I know y'all had a move recently. We did have a move. So, yes, we do have the micro farm project still, but it has it has changed significantly. Right now, I have a chicken coop, but I have no chickens in it. <laughs> I have garden space, but no garden in it. I'm really just growing in containers, and I'm observing my space and trying to decide the best places to, to grow food and to get my farm started up the best way possible. Something you, Farmer Greg, you were talking about last weekend. Oh, yeah. Observe, observe, observe. Yep. Well, we've got, uh, as I said, we have an unstoppable panel. Let's see. Unstoppable or unstoppable? Unstoppable. Let's see. Go. Let's see what, uh, what what everyone can provide for Gary, who's joined us on the line at one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you. Gary, go ahead. Hey, 
good to good to talk with you guys this morning. Right back Boy, at you. I, I I love the uh, segments on Arizona. Our family's out hiking uh, the Arizona Trail. It's 800 miles long, and we take our little dog Phoenix along with us on many of the hikes. But we've got a problem with our little Phoenix at home. She uh, she just uh, goes crazy in the backyard and uh, uh, digs up our sprinkler systems and, uh, you know, eats a lot of the plants. And uh, she loves water, so she's, she just jumps into the swimming pool and just barks at her splashes as she's uh, splashing around in the pool. And, and she's just an all-around water dog, but uh, it's getting quite expensive. We spent the, at least $800 on repairing the sprinkler system a couple times and um, trying to train her to somehow not dig up the sprinklers, but it's just not working. I'm wondering if there's anything you could put on them or any other uh, suggestions you might, uh, uh, you know, well, Farmer you Greg, for a dog that's out of control. <laughs> Farmer Greg raises his hand first. He's got something for you. <laughs> well, that's a dog training issue. There's not anything you can do with the sprinklers. Uh, I work with Tony Drugman over at Dog It, and we just got ourselves a new puppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm in training classes with her. Uh, one of the one of the tools that I use is a dog training collar. Uh, it's a collar that goes around them, and it vibrates. Uh, when they're doing something you don't want them to do. So that's really just a dog training issue. Uh, I don't know that there's anything you can do to prevent them from, you know. Our dogs are the same way. If they see the water spraying, they go after it. Mm -hmm. They really do. So we have our sprinkler heads really low in the ground so that they don't mess with them when the irrigation's off. But as soon as that irrigation pops on and they pop up, (laughs) uh, that's, you know, fair game. But Mm -hmm. we do the same thing. And we train our dogs, but you have to actually be out there yeah. with them mm-hmm. and you training have to catch them. them in the act. That does take take time to do, but I think it's really worth it. Yeah. In the meantime, you know, being maybe uh, protecting your yard just like you'd protect your house with child safe devices. You know, the the backyard at our first home when, when we had our first dog was it became a bit of a moonscape, you know. We just <laughs> realized we couldn't be doing a lot of those planting projects we wanted to, and, and we kind of gave away certain parts of the yard to during that training period. So, yeah, you, it's tough to uh, bring a, a new dog back into a, an environment like that when their their instincts just say, "Hey, go dig, have fun," you know. <laughs> yeah. And John, you, I remember a story you even talked. I don't, I don't know if this is the same dog. But you had planted a fruit tree. The dog ate it. Oh yeah! And it actually ended up becoming one of your best fruit trees down the road. It was. <laughs> well, he cut out. He he chewed off about about five of them at about eighteen inches off the ground. Oh, I remember I, this. And I came out there and I was so disappointed. But I just kind of trimmed up the little cut edge because I I bought them from Greg here, and they were just new trees. We planted nineteen, and those those five were the ones he cut off. Those are our best trees to this day, yep. because it because it, it pruned the back so far. The regrowth, the regrowth was a candelabra of beautiful mm-hmm. branches at about eight, about knee high, and those trees are the most manageable. They are the easiest to harvest, and it's just so cool to think that our dog helped us prune those. This is what I'm talking about. You got to prune your trees short. <laughs> Join John Eisenhower of Integrity Tree Service, Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm, and Kari Spencer of. Of what, Kari? This author of the City Farming Micro Project? Author of City Farming. There we go. <laughs> we'll be back after this. If you like to join the conversation, it's one 767 4348 Text to 411-923. And email info at rosieonthehouse.com if you have a question on plant or insect identification. Email us a picture there.
This is an Easter song. Do the bunny hop. You never did the bunny hop when you were a kid? <laughs> I can chicken dance for you. Okay. Uh, we never did the bunny hop, so though. We'll do that next. <laughs> hey, there's enough of us here to do it. <laughs> there is at one 767 4348 That's one rosie for you to join the conversation. We have a number of text questions that have come through. We're going to shoot through real quick. And uh, also, again, if you have a plant or insect identification you need some help with, you can always email a picture to info at rosieonthehouse.com. We have author of City Farming, Kari Spencer, and along with farmer Greg of the Urban Farm and John Eisenhower of Integrity Tree Service. Combined knowledge of, I'm going to say, at least 100 years. I got 40. You have 30. I'm not admitting. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So it's over 100. It's over 100. <laughs> <laughs> And we have, uh, so the first question, where to buy tool to cover peach trees from birds? Question for uh, Ah, Farmer Greg. Yeah, tool, T-U-L-L-E. It's the stuff they make uh, tutus out of. It's a fabric. You buy it at the fabric store. Yeah, and, you know, it's on sale this time of year because they put it on sale for people to buy for prom dresses and wedding veils. So those seasons are coming up. It also goes on sale again in the fall around Halloween. So those are good Ah, times to buy it. And if for anyone that missed it, you had mentioned at one point in the broadcast never to use bird netting on trees just because of... It tangles with the trees, mercilessly tangles in the trees. And good luck getting it out. And then it kills birds. I don't know why they would even sell bird netting. It makes no sense to me. Uh, but you need something with a smaller hole in it, you know, rather than the bigger holes. And and the uh, tool works great. We had a individual one to know. We talked about the Bonides burnout weed and grass killer. Can they apply that around a tree well where they've got an invasion going? And as long as you're using that product, Bonide burnout weed and grass killer, yes. It works strictly through the foliage, and just make sure you're not using Bonite's cleanup. That is more into the systemic and will get into uh-huh. the, the root zone. So just make sure you're buying from a local nursery and you're talking to somebody that knows the products very well. And follow, follow the label instructions. Oh, Read and follow the label time. instructions. Absolutely. <laughs> now, we were talking earlier about soil, and this texture says, I'm in Gilbert, and I want to know how to make soil good for planting a vegetable garden. How do I have to dig out the existing soil? How deep do I go? What do I backfill it with? You you were talking about tanks. Green stuff from Tucson says there's uh-huh. less than 1%. Organic matter. And yeah, there's 1% organic matter in our desert soils, which is crazy. Low. So really which is this, why only uh, between Phoenix and Blythe, all you see is creosotes. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So are you pitching that question to me? The, the panel. The, the, <laughs> my solution, if you don't have Bermuda and nutgrass, if you have Bermuda and nutgrass, sorry, you just have to work until you dig it all out. Uh, but if you don't have Bermuda and nutgrass, what I do is I'll put down six inches of uh, potting mix or a planting mix. And I we actually have made some up through Tank's Green Stuff down in Tucson called Farmer Greg's Planting Mix. Uh, I just add six inches to it right on the top and plant. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, no digging out. Just no digging. digging. Six inches and plant on top. Yep. We had an area at the micro farm project that we did not have Bermuda grass in, and I just built some wooden frames mm-hmm. and filled them up with compost, and started planting in that compost. And yep. those gardens uh, worked great for many years. Oh yeah. 
what happens over time to that ground below it? Does that organic matter? You have to comp- resupply that, I would imagine, regularly. Yes, organic matter tends to disappear because the microbes and earthworms and other creatures in the soil are coming to the buffet to eat it, right? So if you have a raised bed, for instance, you'll notice that it kind of sinks over time. Mm-hmm. So you do need to replenish it with some with some compost. But eventually the soil underneath the compost kind of mixes in with the compost. Plant roots grow down into the soil and break it up, and it all becomes just... Uh, one entity over time. So I had this garden bed at the urban farm that I've been gardening for 20 plus years, maybe even almost close to 30 years. And what I do with it every year is I add six inches of organic matter right on top, you know, compost, planting mix, six, that kind of stuff. Six inches every year for 20 years. Yep. And well, all right, probably three inches every year, but, you know, add organic matter on top of it every year. And what happened over time was it kind of raised up. So five years ago, what I did is I I dug down below the topsoil to see how deep the topsoil was on there. And where it used to be dirt all the way to the top of the soil, I had 18 inches of growing soil that had accumulated. So what's happening at that interface between the dirt and the organic matter is this amazing soil is being built, and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper over time. Well, there you go. Uh, to our texture and Gilbert, that's a just add to the top and... Add to the every, top. Every year it'll just get better. Yep. With the caveat, if you have Bermuda or nutgrass, you have to dig it out. Which isn't fun. Yeah, well, no. and it's, it's a process. You know, I've, I've got a whole in, process. We could do a whole show on Bermuda grass <laughs> and your garden to, you know, talking about how to get rid of it. Uh, but what I've done at the urban farm is I put down uh, concrete walls 16 inches down and the Bermuda grass lives on the grass side and my gardens are Bermuda grass free. So I call them weed walls. Well, there's the, the Back to Eden video has some really great tips on how to convert a, a lawn area to a, a planting area by laying down. They, they have a process of laying down newspapers, which they cover with compost, another layer of newspapers covered mm-hmm. with compost, which blocks the sunlight to the grass. So for the first year, you might want to try to do a kill a kill of your of that zone and then you can have a little bit better head start on trying to convert it without going through the lengthy process of actually trying to you know, root it out. Bermuda, nutgrass, pretty tough to do that on. But if you're trying to convert, that might be a, a, a way to start by doing a solarization area, actually blocking the sunlight to it so it's going to kill it. And, and then you can come back in a few years later and try to work that soil a little more easily. Because you've killed a lot of the root, the root activity. Uh, I, think that Bermuda, I think that Bermuda and nutgrass is going to be... Here after the, the nuclear holocaust, I have the honestly the in, plant world. <laughs> in thirty plus years of dealing with it, I've never seen well sheet mulch. So they call that sheet mulching over the top. Kill Bermuda nutgrass. It's you got to yeah. dig it out. I don't know. And, <laughs> and then it's a matter of then where does that dirt go? Because you've got this. Oh dirt no, you hole. don't. You don't dig out the dirt. You just dig out the grass. Uh-huh. You can turn it up and sift it out and find the, the roots and pull yeah. those guys out and return the dirt to your garden. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm calling the backhoe. Just straight <laughs> oh, put it in the dump truck and, and go, I'm not shifting through and pulling out <laughs> that works <too>. weed root. <laughs> One of the things that I've done in the past that works really well is I use a uh, um, sod cutter. I'll water the garden or water the lawn really well. I'll go in with a sod cutter, take off the top one and a half inches, 
that gets rid of, in most cases, that gets rid of 95 plus percent of the grass that's there. And then you just have to dig out a little bit. You got to stay on top of it, though. You do have to stay on top of it. I have a no zero tolerance. Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> I have a zero tolerance for Bermuda in my garden. We had Jim that called in and didn't have time to hang on the line, but wants to know about putting woody mulch around a tree. Uh, his six inch. Do, 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 do. I guess he just needs a little bit more information uh, looking at it. Um, how far out? Six foot around diameter. The, around the minimum. tree. You go. Uh, and usually what I do with the fruit trees is I put them on a mound in the middle so that they kind of come up a little bit. But you don't, you don't really want that woody mulch up against the trunk. So, uh, you know, a couple inches away from the trunk, you can, you know, put bricks around it or something. But, uh, and, and the truth of the matter is, is that here in the dry desert, it's not that big of a deal to have woody mulch up against the trunk. But I still would, you know, I still kind of keep it away. When uh, <clears throat> we have a row of ash trees on the north side of our house and I had put woody mulch along, and John, you came out, and the first thing you did when you got there is he got went right to those ash trees and started scraping all the dirt away from the trunk. He's like, "Yep, don't ever do this." Yeah. And the and the the secret, you know, Greg's mentioning woody mulch. You know, the the the, the coarser textured mulch is a lot easier to to manage. When you have the fine textured mulch or mulch that has a lot of fines in it, those fines will will have a tendency to migrate. To the to the lowest spot, mm-hmm. often around the trunk the trunk of the trees, and then the, those fines or any dirt that's up against the trunk of the tree wicks moisture up against the trunk, and if it's held there, uh, it can begin to attack the cambium and destroy the tree. So we've had more trees that have died from uh, soil above the root collar. So where that where the trunk uh, begins to flare out and become root tissue, that should always be kept high and dry mm-hmm. above the soil level. And so if you're going to mulch around your trees, keep that a safe distance, the mulch a safe distance away from the trunk of the trees to prevent that uh, that wicking of moisture up against the trunk tissue. The roots can handle water. The trunk needs to be dry. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and, and I'm sticking by that story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm fully in on that one. <laughs> now, Kari, I was going to wait till after I got a chance to read your book to bring you in, but as I mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, we... Uh, our guest that was coming in for today uh, had a scheduling conflict. We didn't realize it was Easter weekend when we scheduled it. And so we went to our go-to people for gardening and Woo! landscaping and outdoor living. And Greg said, well, I want to bring in Kari. And I said, well, I, I kind of cringed because I, I really wanted to read your book before <laughs> I brought you in again. Well, we so- can bring her back. You can we, read the book, and, and we can talk a, about it a little bit. give her a full today. hour. Yeah. yeah. But tell me about this book a little bit. I, I'm starting at Chapter 1, Easy Peasy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, city farming is, like I mentioned, it's about growing food and raising livestock in urban spaces and making it really easy for the farmer, which you are a farmer if you're growing food, even if it's in the city in your backyard, and making it as productive as it possibly can be. And when my husband and I started our urban farming adventures, we didn't have much direction at all. There just wasn't much information out there. Fortunately, I met Greg, and I learned a lot from him. But, you know, I really wished that I had something that I could read that would just tell me, how do you do this? How do you start this urban farm? And how do you how do you keep it running? And how do you keep it from overtaking your life and your pocketbook (laughs) and have a lot of fun with it. So I wrote this book as kind of the manual that I wish that I had when we started this lifestyle. And, um, you know, it covers all of the, the basics of 
urban farming, mostly a lot about growing food, but also some about animals because we had wonderful adventures with goats and turkeys and chickens and um, other things Rabbits as oh well. Other Quail. <laughs> <laughs> and so I put all of that, as much of that knowledge into the book as I could. And there's a connected website as well. So there are links with um, QR codes that you can scan that will take you right out to more information on the web. And really anything that you want to know about growing food is, uh, you know, in in this book. And just a note to save myself some time next week, when you had mentioned quail, this is some you this isn't something you go trap live. I'm I know that Game and Fish is listening and <laughs> there's a lot of people. No. This is something you order. I mean it's amazing what you can order through a catalog. You can get like a, a private hatchery uh, catalog and order quail that are a day old that are Absolutely. raised or and you hatched. Can get them at many of the pet stores and nurseries as well. We're talking about Coternix quail or Japanese quail, which are um, adapted to create these beautiful, enormous eggs. The birds are tiny. They hardly eat anything. And they create an egg that's like 20 to 25% of their body weight every single day. It's really <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. They're like these yeah. little egg factories. So if you can't have chickens in your backyard, you could have a little mini egg farm if you have some quail. And the breed of that? Coternix, C-O-T-U-R-N-I-X, or Japanese quail if you want to Google it. I can, eat, I can remember Japanese quail a little bit easier than that. Well, if you are in your backyard and you're fighting something that's eating any of your hard-worn vegetables, because that will happen. You, you start planting and everything's going to come. Uh, insects, dogs, we were talking earlier. There's a, a caller with Phoenix. Well, the, Captain Jack's doesn't help against dogs. That doesn't help. But if you've got something that crawls and is eating, Captain Jack's Dead Bug Brew from Bonite is all organic, and it's so safe you can apply it straight to your produce the same day you harvest it. Captain Jack's Dead Bug Brew is a liquid application. You just hook up to your hose and spray directly to the areas you see uh, the insects invading. And it'll last up to 30 days. You can find Captain Jack's Dead Bug Brew all over the state, including if you're in the White Mountains, Christopher's Garden Center in Lakeside. If you're in Tucson, Savano's. And if you're in Mesa, you can get it at Summer Winds Nurseries. That's Bonite's Captain Jack Dead Bug Brew, proudly made in America. You can't resist it when you hear it. <laughs> Well, you know, Easter is about bunnies and chicks, so there you go. it's Ties very in. appropriate. <laughs> so we may have the impossible question finally, finally reached in because it's, it really comes down to the individual. This texture wants to know how much value do citrus trees add to the property value overall? Well, the contributory real estate market value of trees it's called the creme v is a is a technically something that should be determined by a real estate appraiser what they do is they take your home with the trees minus your home without the trees to give you the value of your landscape the landscape includes the irrigation the hardscape all the elements plus the plant material and so trees you know comprise a large percentage of that value so if you have large mature trees that are not breaking up your foundation or, you know, are, are a particularly hazardous tree like a large eucalyptus camaldulensis that's, you know, uh, draping over your home with huge branches. 
um, if they, they actually are an asset to your home value, and they can contribute sometimes up to 15 to 20% of your overall home's value if your landscape, that's your total landscape. Uh, so if you've had an investment in those trees and those plants uh, properly placed, can bring extreme value to your home. Wow. So in answer to that question, if those trees are indeed an asset planted in the appropriate location, not under a power line where they're going to be causing some issues there or too close to the building where they're going to be uh, up against the eaves all, all the time and causing a lot of headaches with having to trim them unnecessarily, uh, those trees are going to be contributing to the, the, the amenity value of the, of the home. So but then there's the real estate value, but then there's the uh, aesthetic, the, the aesthetic and the emotional. If you get yeah. somebody that is just in love with a particular type of tree and you've got a huge one that provides a great shade canopy with a little sitting area underneath, I mean, that emotional connection, you can't uh, calculate a yeah. dollar value. You just have to wait, wait it out and find wait, that find buyer. That person. <laughs> well, they talk- it's, and it sounds like it's not about a single tree. It's about the entire landscape. So you need to nurture your landscape. Sure. They talk about the benefits those plants are providing: shade, privacy, noise abatement, food, uh, aesthetic value, mm-hmm. uh, vertical line in an otherwise low-lying country. You know, maybe the, a ranch-style home needs a bit of vertical line architecturally, and and the placement of the trees too. Are they lower at the curb and get taller toward the home? Those are those are important architectural values. If they're if they're reversed, they become a liability. So plants have to be selected well, have to be placed well in the property to be a true asset. Nice. A true asset. And one thing we always try and transition the mind to, and it, it's, it's hard because it's not cheap, but if you managed your home and property as if you were, all, you were ready to put it on the market tomorrow, mm-hmm. the, the value of that home will always be higher than anyone else on the rest of the street because what's the first thing we go to move we fix everything that's been piling up <laughs> on, right, on our exactly. to-do list for exactly. years exactly. but you know life's busy kids are busy your schedules are busy that's not always practical but if you can afford to do so and have the time to do so if you manage your home as if you're always ready to put it on the market tomorrow right. you could put it on the market tomorrow and it, that value will be higher than anything else like i said on and that on the street well and with your landscape it's it's really a learning that's what i teach is how can you create a landscape that's luscious feeds you and you know is is a value it's but it's a learning it doesn't happen overnight and when we're talking learning we could do that next weekend on the urban farm tour (laughs) that was good yeah the urban farm (laughs) next weekend i think uh next friday and saturday whatever those dates are fourth or fifth or fifth or sixth um, we open up the urban farm Sixth for and tours. Sixth and seventh? No. Mm-hmm. Whatever and Friday and Saturday is. <laughs> you can go to urbanfarm.org front page. And oh, right. No, it'd be sixth and seventh. They're right. they're right there on the right. Um, I'm also speaking at uh, Changing Hands this week on one evening. So if you go to urbanfarm.org uh, on the front page, you can find that. Um, but the tours of the urban farm, they're informational, they're educational. Uh, people arrive in the front yard. We talk about what's going on in the front yard. We go into the backyard. The tours are free. We do ask for a donation if you're so inclined. And then the following Saturday, the pop-up nursery, the fruit tree pop-up nursery is open for supplies, fertilizers, get your questions answered, mulch, that kind of stuff. 
UrbanFarm.org for more. And your podcast is about to hit a million today, we anticipate. Yep, we're going to hit a million listens on our podcast today. I'm very excited about that. And we just recorded our 359th episode. Congratulations. Great Thank milestone. You. And Kari, somebody can get City Farming book where? You can find it on Amazon. And it is City Farming by Kari Spencer. Yes. And itreeservice.com for anyone looking for a certified ISA arborist. John Eisenhower, thank you, sir. Great. Have a great weekend. Happy Easter, y'all. Thanks for your time this Saturday morning. It's open line hour. Coming up next, anything about your house, home, castle, or cabin, get those honeydew checklists out, and we'll start knocking through them.